This sermon was originally recorded in my home office on Sunday night, February 14th, but it was a sermon originally delivered on Ash Wednesday, February 10th at the Grange Community Center for our Ash Wednesday service. This is the basis of our grow group, and that's why we're recording it here. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to take some, uh, I take some time off this, this weekend, and I usually like to read a good book over this weekend. It's good to know the author of that book and understand kind of where they're coming from. You read the, the back cover, you do things like that. Over these next few weeks, we're going to be looking at King David and what kind of attributes he brings to the table from a positive endpoint. If you look at what David had did, he's a pretty amazing guy. We could spend weeks or even a year on his life. Probably one of the longest biographical sections in scripture comes from David. We know a lot about him. We know about uh, how he grew up and how he grew to be a king and his wives and his conquering uh, exploits and things like that. But on that end, he's kind of the original Renaissance man, which is kind of amazing because it's 2,700 years before the Renaissance. 1700s is the Renaissance. He lived a thousand years before Jesus. And a Renaissance just means that you're good at a number of things. You're kind of an expert in a lot. And he was. He was the kind of the golden age of the Jewish world. And if someone had an action figure, it would be King David, we've said before. And he's the kind of guy who it had to be extremely smart. The Bible describes him as ruddy and handsome. But he also is a great tactician, a great warrior, probably second only to Joshua as he extends the borders of the country of Israel. All of this stuff... All of these amazing things, and of course, Thief story, which is the defeat of Goliath. There's probably one story that brings him down more than others. There's one story that lives for infamy. There's one story that's probably been told by a hundred generations as it gets to us, and that's the story of David and Bathsheba. You hear about a king walking out on a roof, and it seems innocent enough. It's probably cooler and that day, but in this particular night, he sees a woman bathing on a roof, and she's a beautiful woman. When I was a kid, I always envisioned that this was this huge palace, kind of like a Disney palace, and it would have been way, way in the distance. And he had to put like a quarter in one of those telescopes, like on the top of the Empire State Building, to see what's going on, or go to get Cabela's kind of binoculars. But the reality is they they think they found David's house, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this. They think they found it a number of times, a conceivable place that would be considered his palace. But the estimate of the the latest one they found is about 10,000 square feet, which is quite a bit bigger, obviously, than my house. My house, without a basement, is probably 2,000 square feet. So now you multiply, just put five of my houses next to it. Many of you have been to my house. You put five of those houses together, and then you think... Well, that's not that big for a palace. And then these other houses, they're not going to leave like this giant courtyard like Versailles or like the White House. They're, they're going to have houses relatively close. So it's maybe conceivably not all that far away. But that's not the issue. The issue is he sees this beautiful woman and in a moment of weakness, he decides I would like to have a relationship with her, a sexual relationship. So he invites her up to this palace but before he even does that, he gets his guards, he gets his messengers to go find out what the situation was. And the, the messengers are smart enough. They say, hey, isn't that Bathsheba? If you read the account in Second Samuel, isn't that Bathsheba? Isn't that Uriah's wife? Well, that doesn't even stop him. 
Instead, he continues this relationship and invites her up. He sleeps with her. And then he makes this attempt, if you read the account before our section, to cover it up. And the way that he does that is he invites Uriah back home from battle. You can't imagine a man who's just hung out with men coming home and not sleeping with his wife. But Uriah is such a servant of David that if you read, he says, I'm going to just sleep with the servants. I'm not. How could I go have a relationship with my wife when all my comrades, all my men are fighting out in battle? I just can't do that. David tries a tactic number two, which is get him drunk. At his request, he says, come hang out with the king. And you can imagine this would have been a big deal. Come hang out with the king to get him drunk. With the intention, he goes home and sleeps with his wife. And then nobody knows the difference that this child she bears would be David's, not Uriah's. They would all think it's Uriah's. Well, that doesn't work either. Instead, no matter how drunk he got him, he sleeps on the mat. And then he goes into war. And the, the ultimate, like the trump card that he lays down, is he plots the murder of Uriah with Joab, his general, who's, Joab's an interesting one. He's the one who said, David, how come you love the people who hate you and you hate the people who love you? He says that after rebellion, I believe, of Absalom, his own son. So all of this takes place. We don't know the timetable. But the Lord sends Nathan to David, it says in scripture, and this is, I believe, from the NIV 1984. Uh, there are two men, and he starts to tell them the story, and you can, everyone loves the story, so here's the prophet, he shows up, and I don't know what capacity exactly he had that he, that he figured, oh, here comes one of these, like, Aesop fables, or there's, like, this big turn. It sounds like he's just relating news based on David's reaction. Here's the story. There are two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor, Nathan is going to tell David this story. You get this point. And maybe have the king weigh in on this this wisdom. So you can imagine. I love riddles. My kids tell me riddles. I like to figure them out. Maybe that's the situation they had. David's wise. Nathan's got like a riddle almost. It's like a real life situation. Come and judge for me. It says the rich man was very... Uh, the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, this lamb, and grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, it drank from his cup, but even slept in his arms. It's like this little chocolate lab that he had. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of the one sheep, one of the all these sheep that he has instead, or the cattle, to prepare a meal for the traveler. It would come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And you can imagine, um, I just, I teach Latin a couple times a week to help out at the local charter school that they teach Latin, they need Latin. So one of the girls there is raising a fainting goat, which I heard her legendary. You can YouTube it. It's supposed to be pretty fascinating. She's so excited. And I just imagine this poor little girl, she's in fourth grade, raising this ewe lamb and then someone wants a meal because someone's coming to town and instead of just going to King Supers, they take her lamb. You know, this is the lamb she carries around. She YouTubes videos about it. And here's this rich man who has all that he needs, all that he could ever want and he takes from this poor man. Well, you can imagine 
David as someone who's written sobs, David as someone who has written songs, David who is uh, plays the harp, but David who's an incredible, brave warrior, you have to wear emotions on your sleeve. A leader of men cannot just be some stoic robot. Well, here's his story, and it, it impacts him to the point that he is furious. And he makes this, he says, as surely as the Lord lives, he's making a vow, essentially. The man who does this, does this deserves to die. Not only that, he must pay for the lamb four times over. So, like, we're going to make this guy pay four times, then we're going to kill him. Because he did such a thing and had no pity. How could, David can't even conceive of a human being that would be like this. He is furious. He's like, not in my kingdom, not under my watch. He will die before he does anything. And he's going to pay for this lamb three times over. And that's when Nathan steps forward, a prophet of God, and says, you're the man. That's not all he says. He continues, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king of Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master house to you, your master's wives in your arms, probably from um, treaties and political things. But if all this had been too little, God says through the prophet, I would have given you more. How did you despise? Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Okay. I don't know if you've been to Jerusalem, but maybe you can picture this skyline. And there's David years later. He's on this roof again. Maybe it's a full moon. It's beautiful out. And he looks and there's these shadowy figures moving around. And you've all experienced this, I think, right? You've experienced maybe something at work or something at school that you're not part of. That there's something kind of going behind the scenes that's you really want to know, but kind of you don't want to know because you know it's not in your best interest. There's something happening. Maybe it's layoffs at work and people are whispering. Maybe, you know, who knows what. David's experiencing this and he sees these shadowy figures down in the city. But because what was happening that night in that future was fulfilled in the prophecy that continued. David's own son staged a coup and a rebellion against his father, He overthrew him and he took charge of the palace. Verse 11, the prophet said, This prophecy, Out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. You did it in secret. But I'm going to let all Israel know. I wonder if David knew that this instant, this low point of his life would be recorded for a hundred plus generations to read about in scripture. All these countless people to read about his humiliation. This recorded for all of history. Uh, This is a while back and there's been a whole lot of instances since then. But this was one of the first, you may have heard of Albert Hainsworth and Albert Hainsworth stomped on another player's head in a game. And this is, we've seen instances since then, and I'm not going to get into all the 
the violence we've seen in the NFL with stomping and hitting and going for the head. But Albert Hainsworth, this is maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago. He's in this interview and he said something like, essentially this, this is for memory. He got suspended five games and he took his suspension. And he sounded sincere because he apologized and he said, I'm not a marquee player or the face of the NFL, but now when people see my face, they'll think of one despicable instance. One despicable incident. And just think about that. Talk about being branded. Here is David marked with a scarlet letter for all of history. And that's David. He's this remarkable, incredible person that so many people looked up to, but at the same time, all of history knows his past. So how does he respond? How would you respond if your worst sin, just think about this, your worst sin was just cut open for the world to see? Think about the person who told the world. He could say, I guess, this is the thanks I get because of the life of being king. Maybe he says, I get it. I'm anointed king and I have to run from hiding from Saul for years. I have to live with all this stuff. I have to rule God's kingdom. What kind of treatment is this from God? What about the time that no one out to fight Goliath? Who do you think went God when they're all afraid? And Bathsheba, you know how beautiful she is. She takes a bath in public. Is this really my fault when this is so accessible to me? Or, Lord, you made me this way. Just look at the hormones you've given me. I mean, this is how you formed me in my mother's womb. You know, who does that sound like? I'm guessing if you're a human being, it sounds like you. It sounds like me, right? We get defensive about sin. We try and blame someone else. And sometimes we're even bold enough to blame God. Nathan could have easily said, you are the man and pointed, I think, at you and me. You're the one. This is what the Lord would say to us. I'm not sure if you you work out. uh, But if you do a lot of pull-ups or maybe you start hitting a rower or you go work out and go to the gym, you start getting these calluses on your hand. Unfortunately, most of mine are on the ends of my fingers from typing. But you get these calluses when you work outside. And calluses, obviously, the, the friction that happens, your body reacts and it forms thicker and heavier skin to take care of it and you got to be careful with them if you get heavy heavy calluses they'll tear right off and that's what's interesting you can eventually stop almost feeling the the touch the feel and the friction if you have these calluses it doesn't even affect you but no matter what if you have a knife it's like someone who comes to talk to you about your sin like they they confront you And you can try and hide around it. You can pretend that it's not a big deal. You can surround yourself with people who say, this is not such a big thing. But God does send Nathans in our life. God sends people in our life. God sends his word in our life. And you know what happens? It says, his word is like a sword and it cuts us open. Right? It doesn't cut your heart open. And just like a callus, it burns. And when your sin is exposed, you feel naked in front of the world. And you're like, oh my goodness. And there's a lot of feelings. There's fear and there's anger and there's regret and there's remorse and there's uh, shame. How does David react? 
Theologians call this the strange work of the Holy Spirit because the gospel is a beautiful thing that we need to know. The gospel is something that changes our heart. But at the same time, the gospel the gospel literally has to cut us open to change us. Well, Nathan comes to David and David listens to the story and he becomes angry. Of course, he's so angry that someone could do this. And he says, you're the man. And David's reaction, if you read it in the Bible, says, I have sinned against the Lord. I did it. Nathan, you are right. I did it. Even before he picked a pen to write Psalm 51, God is working on his heart. And Psalm 51 is so unique because we don't always know the history of all the Psalms. But here is one. If you read it, the penitential psalm is what they call it. It says David wrote this after Nathan confronted him. But that doesn't mean there's not consequences. God comes to him and says, you're not going to die. There's consequences. The Lord is going to temper his justice and his mercy. You will not die. That is grace and that is mercy and that is God. But there's a consequence. You've made a holy God look to the nations around you like he does not matter at all. And there's consequences. One of your children is going to die. So after this child is born, David didn't eat. He did not sleep. He prayed constantly, if you read in the Bible. And he prayed that a parent would have prayed, right? If God came to you and said, your child is going to die and this child becomes sick, your heart goes out. Your heart goes out any time a child is sick. But now your own child And he's probably praying, God, don't take my child, take me instead. But after a week, David sees these servants talking to each other. And he knew, he knew right there the child had died. And they were afraid to tell him about it. Just what I said, those shadowy figures, something is happening and you know, you need to know, but you don't really want to know what the result is. What does he do? What's he do when he finds out God has taken his son from him? He got up, he took a bath. He combed his hair and put on clean clothes, and he went to church. David accepted the Lord's way. He knew it was coming from a perfectly just and perfectly loving God, that this is what repentance looked like. Repentance accepts the consequences that comes. And I know a lot of us have done things and we're afraid about what's gonna, what it means. But repentance is saying, this is what I've done. And on this earth, there's consequences to it. The Lord has taken your sins away. You're not going to die. And he led David to full repentance, full circle. He had sinned. He was sorry for that sin. He's trusting in the promise of God and that he is now guilt-free. He's able to live in a different kind of life. And it showed, I think, he brought misery on Bathsheba, right? We'd like to think that sin only affects us, but it affects everyone around us. He brings misery on Bathsheba, his parents, grandparents, the palace, God's name. But he knew the grace of God. And the Bible says after his son had died, he comforts his wife. And it says he comforted her. I don't know, but no doubt that the promises of God's grace and forgiveness and a new life together would have been brought up. And they have a son. They named him Solomon. He's very famous in the Bible. But we know him as the author of the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon in many of the Proverbs. But after he was born, Nathan, that same prophet, comes to him and he has a message. He said he can keep the name Solomon, but we would like to give him the name Jedidiah, which means love by the Lord. 
there is one more demonstration of repentance in David's life that he was able to accept the conviction that came from Nathan. We're told because God's grace was able to continue this relationship with Nathan. And so often when someone comes to talk to us, they're the bad person, right? And in our mind, we can't believe they would do such a thing or who are they? And you just start tickering off all the sins that they have committed. It's a rare person and I, and I pray that the Holy Spirit works in your heart that quickly accepts the conviction when someone brings news to you. David did that. David and Bathsheba, they have a son Solomon, they have a son Shamua, Absalom, and a son named Nathan. He named the son after the very man who confronted him with sin, and I hope you have someone in your life because we all need that. I hope you have that person in someone's life, and, and maybe you're that person in someone's life. Not that you're a jerk about it, but in a loving way that says, I'm just as big a sinner as you, but I know that God has given me this message to you. In his word, he says this, and your life is not lining up with God's word. But I hope when you bring that conviction, when they recognize their sin, and they're crushed like David, and they say, I've sinned against the Lord, you're going to be just like Nathan. And you said, God is not going to end your life, but God is going to bring mercy and love and forgiveness through his son. Because that's what repentance is all about. Amen.